Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we get to go to Louisiana today. We always like going down to the bayou. I always like going down to Louisiana to find out what's going on in one of the leading states for coastal restoration and coastal protection in the world, in the United States, of course, as a state, but actually worldwide. Uh, People may not know, but the state of Louisiana is ahead of almost every, I think, every other state in the effort that they put into the planning and development of their shore protection and coastal protection program. And uh, it's really uh, impressive what they have been able to accomplish over the last 15, 20 years. And we're going to do a show today, Tyler, talking about what's coming up with the state of Louisiana's Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, the agency that leads that effort in their 2023 Coastal Master Plan, which was recently approved on April 19th, uh, recently approved by the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority Board. So this is a nuts and bolts show with a great guest uh, to learn about what's happening down on the Gulf Coast and in Louisiana. It's going to be a good, damn good show. Really looking forward to it. And before you introduce the guest, Peter, you know, I always like to frame up our shows down in Louisiana from the perspective of the Mississippi River, this dominant river in North America that drains out into the Gulf of Mexico right there. And you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, all of that sediment coming from the heartland of North America, coming through and emptying out into the Gulf onto that shoreline. That's why we think of all those bayous in Louisiana. This is the, you know, for for eons, this has been created. And now we have modern cities and modern life all in that space, and we need to manage it. And so our guest today, our excellent guest today, is going to walk us through how the state of Louisiana is approaching this problem, and it's going to be great. Why don't we introduce this guest? Joining us today on the American Shoreline Podcast, and we're very, very privileged to have her, Dr. Krista Jankowski. She's a coastal and climate scientist, and she is also the manager of strategic planning and plan development for the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, the lead state agency, uh, with the responsibility of managing uh, and protecting the Louisiana coast. Dr. Jankowski led the effort to put the 2023 plan together, the Coastal Master Plan, I'm sure with a very large team. It's an extraordinary undertaking. Uh, So, Tyler, we have the pro at the top of the heap to really help us understand what's happening in Louisiana and the 2023 Coastal Master Plan. Yes, as you said, Peter, this is kind of a plan that all the other states can look at and learn something from, we believe. Looking forward to getting into it, but first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Support for the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today comes from Geodynamics, an NV5 company. Geodynamics' team of specialists provide accurate surveys of complex coastal environments around the world using the latest technology in marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing. 
With customized vessels and sensor configurations, Geodynamics delivers meticulous data products to answer their clients' toughest questions. Visit nv5geospatial.com or geodynamicsgroup.com to learn more about Geodynamics and their solutions that improve lives. And from the Coastal Zone Foundation. The Certified Coastal Practitioner Program from the Coastal Zone Foundation offers courses covering 11 different subject areas, including coastal engineering, ecology, geology, project management, and more. The CCP program emphasizes a multidisciplinary approach to coastal zone management, setting you apart from the competition and demonstrating your commitment to best practices and a code of ethics in your field. With modules available online or as live short courses, the CCP program is accessible to coastal professionals at all stages of their careers. Learn more at coastalzonefoundation.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the CNT Daily Blast newsletter for the latest news and updates from around the American shoreline. Want to support our work? Learn more about sponsorship packages at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Well, Dr. Jankowski, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. It is a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here and, and talk about what we're doing in Louisiana. Well, it's kind of a bit of a, of a tradition on uh, for Tyler and I on this show is we do like to get to know the guests a little bit uh, so our listeners have a better feel of who they're hearing from. Uh, if you could, uh, Krista, tell us about your background uh, professionally and how you came to the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority. Sure. Um, so I am trained as a geoscientist. And so I started my academic career um, with degree in geology, really looking at glacial systems. So as different as you can get from what I work on now. Um, and over time, I really realized that I was more interested in um, questions around change and questions around environmental change, climate change. And I didn't really have a particular preference of what landscape I was looking at those questions about. So I started in glacial geology, moved on and did work uh, with lake systems and did some work out in uh, East Africa and Lake Tanganyika for a little while. Um, I after undergrad, I went and received my master's degree at Columbia University in a program called Climate and Society which really is trying to take climate projection, climate science, and then pair it with an understanding of how that impacts actual people, how it impacts communities and individuals, and, and trying to train folks up to kind of work at that nexus. Um, and so I did that for a little while, worked at that nexus um, with the Red Cross Climate Center, where I actually worked as a climate change adaptation um, specialist uh, for their disaster risk reduction uh, programs. And I did that in both Southeast and uh, Central Asia. Um, and then I found my way to Louisiana and I, I did my PhD at Tulane University um, and really focused on wetland systems and how our coastal wetlands and marshes respond to sea level rise and other climate forcings over time um, and how that might have been different in the past um, and how that might look different in the future. So it kind of was a windy path, sort of like the Mississippi River, but I made my way down to Louisiana as quick as I could. Uh, fascinating that you have so much experience all over the world. 
uh, and then you you find your way to Louisiana. Would you, you know, I, I started the show with this kind of Mississippi draining into the Gulf of Mexico, but from your perspective, what, what attracted you to the Louisiana shoreline and, and help our audience understand the complexity of this part of the American shoreline? Sure. So Louisiana is sort of a unique part of the American coastline in that it really has this dominant force, like you mentioned, the Mississippi River. And so really the southern part of Louisiana, the entire south of Louisiana was really built up from the moving and meandering of that Mississippi River over thousands of years. And so all the land that folks can stand on, what's left of it, <laughs> is uh, is all a, a result of the Mississippi River depositing sediment coming from uh, other parts of, of North America and bringing that down to, to the Gulf Coast and building out deltas and, and bayous. And then over time, and with the intervention of humans um, and, and really trying to manage that system as, as we had settlements in, in towns like New Orleans and, and other places, um, you know, there were efforts to sort of rein in the power and the movement of that river with the levees um, that, that kind of hold it in its place uh, today. And in doing that, it really um, kind of changed that system fundamentally and actually um, reduce the amount of sediment that was available to kind of keep building up or even nourishing those wetlands that, that are in Louisiana. And so now we have a problem that we've cut off the source of sediment and, and we have, um, you know, rising seas and that, that sediment that did get laid down, it's pretty squishy. And so we have a lot of subsidence that happens and, and, uh, sinking of the land surface. So we've got all these different, uh, aspects of, of building land up, but then having that land be inundated or being, uh, sort of sinking down. And it's really a unique landscape. It, it truly is. And the scale of the projects it, historically in the lower Mississippi River, the Mississippi River generally, and particularly at the mouth the river, have been extraordinary. Uh, tremendous engineering and science investment over the many, many decades. I don't know, Krista, and when you got to Louisiana and you did your PhD at Tulane, uh, go green wave, right? Uh, the... <laughs> yeah. uh, the uh, the study of, of how the marshes have evolved on the Louisiana coast must have been a very interesting um, perspective to gain and to study. Uh, it just occurs to me as someone who's not deeply involved in, in Louisiana restoration uh, planning and projects is so much of what seems to be happening is to try to undo what it is we did over the last century in fiddling with the Mississippi River and the management of sediment uh, do you think that's a fair analysis that so much of what CPRA is trying to do is to undo the damage caused by the systematic uh, channelization and levying of the Mississippi River? Fair or unfair? I would say that, that it's fair to some degree, right? We want to um, try and um, understand how those actions and, and those decisions that were made by generations before us, how those have impacted sort of the landscape over the and its evolution over the past century and then kind of what direction it's going into the future. So it's important for us to understand what those decisions were and what the consequences of those decisions are. Um, and so we do really want to try and lean on our understandings of this sort of managed system and then what that system looked like when it was more natural or when it wasn't being as heavily managed. And so understanding how, you know, when there would be something like a crevasse in the Mississippi River, or there'd be a flood event, how that sort of built up the land around it. And so you have things that we're trying to manage for that were also, you know, 
a benefit to the system. So trying to understand how that works. And then, yeah, we are trying to um, sort of go in a different direction and, and try and fix up some of the some of the challenges that have been created by our, our land management. And the other thing that comes to mind when we're thinking about this is just the available information. You know, when when New Orleans was established as a city, and I, I don't even know when that was, but goodness, Peter, it might have been in the 1600s or something. I mean, it's an old yeah, city. I think so. And needless to say, but, you know, man's understanding of the Mississippi River, its systems, the the way that that delta moved, you know, through for eons just was not there. Um, so it's not as though it was entirely uh, in spite of, of go, you know, being defiant to natural systems that we ended up in this position. But uh, it is true that we we are now in a, a place where we can understand these systems more, and we see the hand we're dealt there in Louisiana, and it is just quite clear that uh, it's a it's a challenging coastal space to manage. And so, Krista, would you fill us in on kind of the history of the CPRA as an agency? And what that looks like from a management perspective, how traditionally and historically has the state of Louisiana attempted to manage its shoreline? Sure. So CPRA is a relatively new um, entity within state government. So it was actually established um, following the uh, hurricane season of 2005. So those massive and, and devastating hurricanes, Katrina and Rita, that actually, that, that really changed um, the, the landscape and, and the communities of Louisiana in a big way. And so there was uh, a need that was recognized in the aftermath of those storms for the state of Louisiana to really consolidate um, expertise and, and practitioners um, who were working in coastal in the coastal field that were originally housed under a lot of different agencies. So they might be at the Department of Environmental Quality or they might be um, Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, but they were working in the coastal area. And really to try and bring those folks together under one umbrella, the CPRA, and um, allow for there to be sort of a concentration of that expertise in one in one uh, agency, but also to have you know more efficient conversations with federal partners who were coming in to help um, manage the recovery effort and the money that was coming in following those storms. So CPRA was was sort of established in the aftermath of that to try and um, kind of move the state of Louisiana forward, and um, so. The state of Louisiana did not start its coastal program or working on projects in the coast with CPRA. It had been doing it for decades ahead of that. Um, but the agency uh, really um, has been the focal point of that from 2007 uh, up till today. And so um, for the past 15 or so years, the agency is not just a planning agency, but it's also an implementation agency. So we've been working to plan uh, restoration and protection projects for uh, areas all across the coast, from the Chenier Plain to the Bird's Foot Delta, um, and and really look at how we can try and address issues of land loss, storm surge-based flood risk, all of those things, um, and try and use all the tools available to us in our toolbox. So trying to use a lot of different uh, types of restoration projects or types of, of protection projects to help us out in that regard. Well, the foundation of the, the agency, I think, Tyler, in my opinion, and I think really in the coastal professional community around the United States, I think is gets high marks uh, for its integrity, it's oh, planning yeah. prowess, it's engineering prowess, it's financial management. I mean, there's a lot of, of positive uh, 
uh, uh, perceptions of CPRA. And the foundation of the agency's action is its coastal uh, master plan, which is updated periodically, I guess, about every three to five years. That's the focus of the show today. The 2023 coastal master plan was approved in April, as I said. And just a couple of stats, Tyler, for the listeners out there. Uh, the first plan was approved in 2007. As as uh, Krista mentioned, the agency was formed in 2005. $21.4 billion in coastal protection and restoration projects have been implemented by CPRA since the first plan in 20, uh, 2007. Uh, they have benefited or restored 55,000 acres of habitat, 369 miles of levee improvements, and an astonishing 71.6 miles of restored barrier islands and headlands across the coast of Louisiana. They are out working. Uh, the 2023 master plan authorizes a whopping $1.62 billion investment uh, on the in the Louisiana Coastal Restoration Project program. Uh, Krista, that's a hell of a plan to manage and to pull together. I mean, dealing with that much money, that many constituencies, that much technical information. What the hell was that like leading the effort to uh, to pull together the 2023 master plan? Well, first, I'll thank you for the compliments to the agency. I'll make sure my executive director and board of our chairman of our board uh, here's here's those. Um, yeah, we we are busy out in the coast and have been for quite some time. And um, the coastal master plan is, um, you know, it is the starting point for all the work that uh, CPRA does over the years. So we. Um, are required, mandated by Louisiana state law to uh, update the coastal master plan. It used to be every five years. Now it's every six years. And that plan is really the guiding document that lays out uh, the sort of path forward for investment in restoration projects. So that's things like marsh creation, um, diversions, land bridges, uh, as you mentioned, barrier island maintenance, um, those types of projects, as well as risk reduction projects. And so those can be things from, um, you know, uh, building new levees or, or uh, adding lifts to levees to, to increase their protection, uh, floodgates, uh, storm surge barriers, things like that, as well as um, non-structural, as we call it, uh, mitigation measures. So those elevating homes or uh, floodproofing commercial uh, properties or, or residences and things like that. So um, putting together a plan uh, for the state of Louisiana, we try and manage uh, to make a balance between looking far enough into the future that we're anticipating uh, the challenges that may come down the road, uh, but not too far into the future where we get um, too far into uncertainties around uh, things like funding or climate change and, and kind of those, those types of things. So we actually look at a 50-year plan uh, and and try and um, uh, project out what the coast of Louisiana may look like physically uh, and in terms of uh, risk from storms, uh, hurricanes and tropical storms uh, for a 50-year time period. And then we give ourselves a funding constraint because uh, there's not infinite money in this in this industry, as, as y'all would know. Um, and so we say, uh, 
over 50 years, if we have $50 billion, which comes out to about a billion dollars a year, which is our current budget for our, our agency, um, you know, if we had that much money, what could we get done? How much land loss could we uh, reduce either by maintaining land that would otherwise be lost or by building new land uh, in some cases? Um, and how much can we reduce storm surge-based flood risk and, and damages uh, to structures and, and economic damages? Um, so it's a big plan. And thankfully, I have a team uh, that works alongside me. It is not all on my shoulders by any, by any stretch. Um, so we have about seven to eight folks who work full-time on the Coastal Master Plan. That's engineers, uh, ecologists, geologists like myself. Um, all kinds of folks are, are on that team. Um, and then we also expand that effort out. If you get a copy of the, the master plan or look it up online and, and go to the back, you'll see our acknowledgments is about four pages with a uh, real tiny font. And that's uh, all kinds of uh, engineers, scientists, um, landowners, um, folks who work for nonprofits, all kinds of folks who have been involved in this process over the last six years to kind of bring it to fruition. It is a huge portfolio, needless to say, and this is why uh, we like to look to Louisiana uh, for kind of the, it's kind of the telltale of, of the direction that coastal management and protection might be heading in. And uh, I've got to say, you know, you, you put a new iteration out. This is a, a new edition, the 2023 edition of this plan. What, what's new? What, what changed from the last iteration to this one? Yeah, sure. So um, the first thing that we talk about when we talk about the master plan is our uh, commitment to including the best available science and, and most up-to-date data. Um, so there's a big effort in the development of this plan that started a few years back to really get as much observational data and as much um, new information about, say, climate scenarios or population projections or all kinds of things that we need to understand um, to sort of make our predictions of the future coast um, and to incorporate those in our in our modeling um but beyond that we also have um moved in a direction of um really thinking about the coast uh we have to look at the coast uh as as one sort of unit right the uh, the plan is a coast coastal master plan not a you know quarter of the coast master plan and so we look at, at a pretty large spatial area and sometimes it's hard to really um get a good idea of the particular challenges or opportunities that may exist in one community or one region of the coast versus another when you're kind of zoomed out that far. So this time around, we really made a, a, a pretty big effort to um, sort of reframe uh, our outputs and our projections and our evaluation of projects and what they might do to benefit the coast um, in a sort of regional uh uh, format. So we have five regions that we've identified across the coast. And we really not only looked at sort of benefits on a coast-wide scale, but also what that could mean for a region like uh, Barataria or Terrebonne or the Chenier Plain and how those parts of the coast sort of function differently, how they have the stakeholders there have different concerns, um, how in the future what might be challenging them uh, might be different in the Chenier Plain where you need to manage water and sort of get it out. Um, and, and in the Southeast, you might need to be thinking about how can we build more land? And those are two different, uh, questions that we have to answer and, and two different problems to solve. So really looking at things in a, in a regional, um, sort of focus. And then I would also say we really tried to improve upon our outreach and engagement efforts with this master plan. And so 
one of the things is we are a science-based uh, plan, but we're also stakeholder informed. And so we really do uh, value the input of, uh, you know, citizens across the coast, um, folks who live, work and play in the coastal zone. And so we, you know, had an unprecedented number of, uh, of public meetings and, and just outreach events that we were sort of conducting all across the coast. And, you know, a good chunk of that had to be relegated to uh, virtual options during uh, COVID. Um, and and uh, so that put some strain on it. But we really did um, make a, a big effort to make sure we were talking to more people and getting more people informed about the plan and not only just the projects and what CPRA is doing, but even just what the coast may look like in the future. And sort of equipping people to sort of what to expect or what may be coming uh, and and so that they can make decisions for themselves and their families. I got to say, Chris, you know, it, it's it's one of the, I have to say, uh, it's inherently political, the job that you have. Sure. <laughs> uh, Tyler and I were at an ASBPA conference in New Orleans a couple of years back and uh, listened to the lieutenant governor come into the ASBPA conference uh plenary session to speak to the engineering practitioner community, the scientists and, and uh, the engineers and uh, all the professionals and public officials who attend the ASBPA and proceeded to lay down the gauntlet about the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion Project and why it was an absolutely horrible idea. Uh, this is Lieutenant Governor of the state, a high elected official, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to uh, stir up controversy. What I'm talking about here, I'm interested in for you as a, as a professional geologist who is a scientist who came in that undergraduate master's degree program uh, and, uh, and then into your PhD, uh, you find yourself leading this planning effort, uh, which, as I say, is inherently political. Can you talk a little bit about what that required of you professionally in terms of your personal and professional growth to handle uh, such a public, high-profile, high-dollar planning process. How was that for you as the manager of the planning process? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think that it has been, um, you know, one of the most challenging aspects of my professional career to date to uh, work on this plan. And that, you know, comes from, um, you know, a lot of different aspects, one of which is, is that what you're asking about, right? So there are um, a lot of different stakeholders and there are a lot of comp competing interests in the coastal zone, right? So you may have um, certain folks who work in fisheries, right? And they really need a, a, a more um, saltier water to get their catch. And then you have oystermen, right? And so they don't want that. <laughs> or they, or they, want, they don't want it to be too fresh, right? For the, for the oysters to, to be flourishing. And, and you have all these competing interests and there's just no way to make everybody happy. And so you have to sort of dispense with that from the start and you have to kind of uh, let yourself um, be free of that and then really kind of refocus your effort and your, your thought process on what are the goals and the mission of CPRA? What is the job we're trying to do here? And at its core, CPRA is trying to retain a coastal Louisiana that people can live in, they can work in, and they can recreate in. And that's not going to look like what it looks like today. It's not going to look like what it looked like in the past. It's going to look some somehow different. Um, 
But the thing that CPRA can do and, and the efforts that we're putting together as a state is that we can have a say in what that looks like. Um, and in having a say, we also have to consider that, you know, again, there are these different viewpoints and, and some people want it to look uh, differently than others. And so you really have to uh, think about what is defensible in terms of science and engineering? What are the options that we have on the table that are plausible to meet the goals that we're trying to achieve of reducing land loss and um, and and reducing storm surge-based flood risk? And then you have to think about, okay, if we take these steps, if we are to enact a project like the Mid-Barrietary Sediment Diversion or any types of projects, what are the good things that are going to happen or that we expect to happen? And where are there areas where we may need to mitigate? Cause there are some, uh, you know, impacts that are, are impacting people negatively. And so I think, um, understanding that it doesn't end just by saying we have this project idea, we're going to implement it. And, and that's that where the state of Louisiana, that's not our stance. Um, you know, our stance is with, for instance, with the example of Mid-Barretaria, we've been working and there are hundreds of millions of dollars in the funding in the that that is um, for that project to implement mitigation measures to help out fisher folk, to help out communities that may have, um, you know, some flooding issues from that project and to really try and make sure that we're not um, sort of causing harm while we're trying to do good. So it's, it is a, it's a interesting issue and, you know, emotions run high and there are sometimes folks say some things that may hurt your feelings. Uh, and, uh, you sure, just have right? to, re you know, it just, you just have to remember that the reason they're speaking so strongly is because they feel so strongly and they're really passionate about their state and the livelihood and, and they really care. And, you know, that, that gives me hope because I really care too. Uh, so as long as we both care, I think we can, you know, work towards something that, that looks better for our future. Incredibly well said. I have to say, Thank you. <laughs> that's really a great understanding of the process. And uh, I, uh, moving ahead from here, uh, one of the foundations, the driving forces behind the success of CPRA and the master planning process, you know, over the last 15, 20 years um, has really been the presence of and the availability of lots of money and a great deal of which came from the Deepwater Horizon spill through the Restore Act. Uh, which directed so much of the penalty and fine revenue back toward uh, coastal states on the Gulf of Mexico, an incredibly important uh, federal law that's uh, uh, helped underwrite basically the coastal protection planning processes on all of the Gulf states, but particularly Louisiana. And the other thing has been the leadership of uh, Chip Klein, who's uh, the executive director of CPRA, I think, or the director of CPRA, who has recently announced his retirement. Uh, so there, we know that the restore money is going to be coming to an end here in the next five years. Uh, you've had a, this great leadership from Chip Klein. Um, looking ahead, how do you, how does the CPRA adjust to these two big changes, the end of, of federal investment through the Restore Act and, uh, and finding a new leader to replace Chip Klein? Sure. So um, with regards to the funding, uh, the Restore Act money has been um, crucial uh, in, in our ability to meet those uh, sort of 
to my mind, astronomical uh, levels of funding to implement projects over a billion dollars a year for the past few years and for the next few um, that we anticipate. And so, of course, uh, the the sort of idea of that ending in um, 2032 and, and no longer being available is something that is on the minds of, of uh, my executives at my agency. And so what really the conversations that I've heard um, around that are really focused on thinking through how do we leverage the money we currently have? How do we make smart choices? And, and you know, part of that process is, is the master planning process and making sure that we're thinking about projects that are going to be sound investments, um, as well as how do we uh, look for additional opportunities. I know that um, we have a really, really strong um, group of folks who work with our state leadership and work with, uh, you know, their counterparts in the in the federal government to make sure that folks, when um, when different bills are coming up, the Infrastructure Act or or WERDA or other other uh, you know legislations coming through, um, that they're there advocating for Louisiana and saying, you know, we need additional funds and and look at the great work we're doing and using the projects and and their impacts to sort of. Um, as you know, case in point, this is why we need additional money because we're having such success with this program and 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 um, you know moving the needle forward for for coastal Louisiana. So I think really what it comes down to is just uh, being creative and thinking through what are the different ways we can try and find funding for the program and how can we make sp- smart choices with the money we do have um, in the meantime. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Well, no, I just, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there at all, but I, I have to say that uh, what you have come up with is an incredibly impressive uh, document and plan. I encourage all of our listeners to check it out. Uh, Google up the Louisiana Coastal Master Plan and uh, look at it. It's, it's, an, it's, it's a beautiful document, first of all, and uh, it's, it's, no doubt best read uh, as opposed to us going through it page by page. But uh, Krista, would you kind of walk us through the big uh, structural elements of this plan and how it was laid out? Sure. So um, one of the aspects of of my job, uh, in addition to sort of, you know, uh, taking a lead on on sort of climate change scenarios and and things like that on the technical side was really as the lead of outreach and engagement, which in, encompassed the sort of production of this document, right? And we worked with a a really great um, group of folks at um, actually a landscape architecture firm, uh, Scape, um, and really worked hand in hand with the team from from that firm to uh, work on the sort of visual and layout and sort of the the stylistic guidance for the document and all the, um, you know, PowerPoint presentations and everything. When we go out and we put a map up on the wall, it all looks looks real nice because of of our collaboration with them. So I just want to make sure, uh, you know, that that part of it is is really important because we're really trying to uh, communicate with folks. And when you have something that looks real nice and that um, you know is sort of clear and um, engaging, it makes talking to folks and, and conveying that information all the easier. So that was a really important part of this process as well. Um, but we really did focus on putting together this master plan in a way that um, we wanted it to sort of follow a few central themes. And those themes were really sort of identifying parts of the process and the development of the plan and sort of the the work of the coastal program overall. So we st- kind of start out 
with a with a section, um, you know, uh, that that is really thinking about sort of the foundational information you need to know about what CPRA is, what uh, the coastal program is, what we've done in the past, um, that kind of thing. So we, we kind of start out with a, a question of like, what can we understand? Um, and then from there, we want to think through, okay, what is what are we doing with the master plan? We're really sort of using these really complex uh, landscape models and storm surge and wave models and risk assessment models to predict what the future of coastal Louisiana may look like, um, you know, without further work from CPRA, without further work on the coast, what what might the evolution from this point in time forward for 50 years look like? And so we wanted to look at that predict aspect of it. Um, and then we really wanted to think through, okay, if we have a future that's challenging where there's, a little, you know, hundreds of square miles of land loss and and uh, really intense flood depths, you know, what can we do to address that? We uh, really go through the process of um, modeling uh, all these restoration and risk reduction plans and seeing what their benefits are um, and, and evaluating what their impact may be. And then from that process, we come up with a list of projects. Uh, this iteration, we got 77 projects total, 65 of those restoration and 12 of those um, as structural risk reduction projects. And then, you know, just to add on to it, $11 billion that we say should be used for non-structural in addition. Uh, and, and then that's where we talk about taking action and, and what can we do and how do we put these projects on the ground and, and how much is it going to cost and what's that going to look like and what's that going to get us in the end? Or, or uh, we often say, what does the plan deliver? Um, and so that's kind of the structure of the plan. And then we look at um, what the plan delivers uh, when we take action at the regional level and, and kind of lay that out for folks as well. Well, at $21.4 billion has been expended uh, since the p- first plan was adopted in 2007, according to CPRA. Uh, I've often heard it described as a $50 billion plan, and I think it refers to the fact that the planning horizon for CPRA is 50 years, and it's a billion dollars annually, but it's a lot of money. And I wonder, you know, the, the, the track record uh, so far, we're 15 years into the CPRA planning process, essentially, and execution uh, are there frank discussions within the agency or on the CPRA board or among the staff on the effectiveness of the program that has been implemented to date? Um, and I'm not trying to be uh, critical. I'm trying to say that in every endeavor of this magnitude, there are successes and failures and strong decisions and decisions that in retrospect maybe did not turn out as well as you would hope. Uh when you're putting this planning process together and looking at what to do next, uh, what do you make of the past history? How would you grade CPRA's project effectiveness uh, over the last, you know, since the 2020, 2007 plan was adopted? Yeah. So I think uh, the sort of coolest part of working on the master plan and working for CPRA is really that the master plan itself, the development process, um, is really a, a great example of adaptive management, right? And so really what we do and the reason we update it every six years is so we can not only just take in, you know, uh, research from academics and and the newest, coolest, uh, you know, modeling uh, uh, innovations and things like that, but is also so we can look back and say, hey, we have monitoring stations that CPRA and the USGS uh, have out the Coastwide Reference Monitoring System that has, you know, almost 400 uh, wetland monitoring sites across the coast of Louisiana. 
And that's been online now since about 2007, 2008. And so we have data from those sites collected, you know, multiple times a year, looking at, um, you know, surface elevation, looking at vegetation distribution, looking at water levels, all kinds of things. And so we can also know where projects that have been implemented are in sort of relation spatially to those sites and, and understand the impacts. We can monitor, um, you know, we have, we have uh, projects such as a, a, the Davis Pond diversion that we have monitored over the past several years that's where you can go out and you get in a boat. And if you went out there the year before, you might go out and see brand new land that you didn't even see last time around. And so you can kind of just see it on the ground as well. Um, but we also know that, you know, um, we have uh, a lot of instances where we go out and we're kind of looking at the coast um, for very particular purposes. So following Hurricane Ida, and um, we, you know, had a lot of uh, flights that went out to look at where there were uh, areas where marsh was sort of uh, ripped up and, and damaged from Hurricane Ida and, and you know, looking at the how our projects were faring uh, sort of in the path of that storm. And what we found is, you know, there was a, a good amount of land loss and, and wetlands that were lost to Hurricane Ida, but they weren't in the same areas where we had marsh creation projects. They weren't in the same areas where we had things on the ground. And so, you know, there were some impacts and, and there needed to be some, some uh, you know, going out there and, and addressing those. But by and large, our, our projects are, are maintaining and they are, uh, you know, performing well under, you know, circumstances of, of really large, really strong storms. And so we see that, you know, we have successes. We just finished building some of the largest marsh creation projects uh, that have ever been built in the state of Louisiana. And it might be in the nation uh, with the Spanish Pass uh, marsh creation projects. Um, you know, we're, we're really looking at a system where we understand there's not going to be a point where we can say, oh, hands up, job well done, we've solved the coastal crisis, right? That's not that's not a day that's going to come. But what we can do is we can look at what are the impacts of the projects we're putting on the ground, what are the impacts of the decisions about how we want to manage this system, and then by seeing the success of projects, you know, when they're tested, by understanding that we have more land in an area than we did before we started working there, um, we can just we we can just experience the fact that the coastal program is being successful. Well, uh, I love that approach. It's it's definitely uh, this is the this is the type of leadership that I think you need to have in in Louisiana and all over the American shoreline. Frankly, dynamic spaces where the public takes tremendous interest in anything that you do from a management perspective. Of course, you know, I think inevitably uh, people will skip to the project list. They'll want to see where the rubber meets the road or at least what the plan is. And uh, would you, could you highlight maybe one or two of the projects that you think are particularly uh, unique or inter- innovative for other coastal professionals from around the American shoreline that might not be familiar with the Louisiana portfolio of projects? Sure. So for the 2023 Coastal Master Plan, we, um, for the first time, uh, have uh, solicited and and evaluated projects um, that we're calling land bridges. Now, this is not a new idea in coastal Louisiana by any stretch of the imagination. People have been talking about how can we build sort of linear features of sort of uh, marsh uh, across a basin that could manage hydrology, that could 
could sort of maintain estrogen gradients um, that could provide, you know, all the ecosystem services of marsh and, and have them sort of as these longer linear features rather than sort of the traditional, um, you know, more contained um, or more uh, sort of locally located um, marsh creation projects. And so um, we, uh, kind of internally, we were like, well, these projects are really big <laughs> and um, they actually would fill in more um, sort of deeper water than a traditional marsh creation project in the way that we're thinking about them. Um, and so there, we, we really thought, okay, these projects are really big. They're probably going to be pr- really, really expensive. We didn't know if they would um, sort of compete against the other projects that may get, you know, uh, a lot of benefits for a cheaper price tag when we kind of went through the process of, of of evaluating all these projects, but we were really excited to find out that they they did compete. And so we do have a couple land bridge projects in, in the coastal master plan for the first time in the 2023 plan. And I think what's really um, uh, interesting about this project is that it takes an idea that has been kicking around in Louisiana for a long time. It kind of put some revision and refinement on it in terms of thinking through, okay, what are the rules we're going to implement for doing this? Okay, we can't fill water super, super deep. So we have to have a limit, right? We're going to fill deep water up to five feet deep, things like that. And and how are we going to really imagine this could work? And um, we're really excited about the prospect of these projects, um, you know, moving forward into feasibility and design for the first time and thinking through you know, how might these address some of the issues that are identified in, um, say, Lower Terrebonne uh, Parish or or Terrebonne Basin and where we have, uh, you know, conversations with, uh, you know, citizens uh, across the the parish, across the basin, um, you know, including, uh, you know, tribal leadership that we have conversations with. And we're really trying to think through how can we address a lot of the challenges they have in that area, which is not a lot of opportunities to build land, um, not a lot of, um, you know, integrity of the marsh there because of a lot of oil and gas um, uh, exploration and sort of canal um, uh, opening up that has happened over the past century. And and how can we really address those things? And we think that land bridges are, are sort of a unique uh, opportunity to continue to have those conversations and really try to um, think through how that project might um, sort of meet some of the goals that the, the folks that live down there are really interested in meeting. Peter, I know you have a quick question here, but I just have to say Terrebonne, I just, I just thought about it. Good land is what that means. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, there <laughs> sure isn't does. that much land there. <laughs> it's pretty wet. Anyway, go ahead, Pete. No, that's, uh, you know, well, it, it's all about adaptive management. And uh, as, as Krista points out, uh, the evaluation of the success of projects, the extensive monitoring that is undertaken as a result of, you know, CPRA and, and USGS and others, uh, is all about learning how to do it. I mean, Tyler, this is, I don't know, I get a feeling of arrogance about this that, and not not about CPRA in particular, but about how human beings relate to the coast and our capacity to manipulate and to design and to plan what, in an area that is, as we know, is fundamentally unpredictable and fundamentally dynamic. Um, uh, it is a very difficult space to manage, and uh, Louisiana is at the forefront of trying to do the right thing in natural resource restoration, marsh restoration, barrier island restoration, and and uh, it's just, but it's it's a it's an incredible uh, exercise, Tyler. Just as a just as a philosophical question, 
do we have the capacity to understand these systems in a sufficient level of detail to improve them over time? Is this the time we're going to get it right? Or are we making the same kinds of mistakes we made in 1920 or 30 when we channelized the whole damn river? Are you asking me? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that. No, I do. I really do. Well, I'll tell you what you I have to I, ask Krista too, well, actually. No, notice, no, notice I left the pause. I was like, I'll, I'll okay, let Krista, let me, let me say this though. And I, I will say this in, in credit to uh, your effort and the whole team and the state of Louisiana and all of the stakeholders that participated, everybody, honestly, everybody. This is essential democracy. Uh, every person, every single person, not only in Louisiana, but around the American shoreline and in the interior has an interest in how our coastlines, including the Louisiana shoreline, are managed. And it's it. this gets to the heart of what it means to live in a democracy. There's compromise all over the place. So, you, you know, yeah, you're right, Peter, like nothing about this plan is a silver bullet. Everything is a compromise. Everything comes with a dollar amount, and there are constraints all over the place. But that is that is part of that's what's unique about the American experiment and about uh, managing the American shoreline. And that's why we look to Louisiana, I think, so it, it, with kind of like it's looking to the future in a way. And so I have to say i'm I'm quite impressed with this plan. I'm sure that not everything will be, uh, you know, perfect but and far from it but as an effort as an exercise and as a as a sign of our ability to find middle ground i find this plan to be a beacon for us all to look at i don't have a question for you krista but do you have comment on that yeah i mean i i would just say that you know um i think your comments ring true to me i think that there is, uh, you know, there is a huge challenge ahead of us, not only for the state of Louisiana, but as you mentioned, you know, we're at the forefront. Uh, our communities and our state is really uh, leading the fight for our people, but also, you know, for the lesson learned for, you know, folks all across America and, and around the world on, on how to work in these systems and how to sort of identify goals, identify um, pass forward and, and really implement them and, and try to work for it. And I think, you know, what's important is to remember, I think you're absolutely right. There's not a silver bullet. It's not going to be perfect. Uh, and I think the, the thing to remember or the thing that keeps me, uh, working hard on, on putting together this plan and, and working for the state is that, you know, it's a, it's a fight worth fighting. And I think, you know, we have, uh, it, it, you know, you, y'all have been down to Louisiana, you know, it's beautiful country down here. Uh, we got some of the best people in the world, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that our communities are, you know, landscape, um, and, and what makes Louisiana, Louisiana is worth fighting for. And so that's, that's why we do it. And there'll be, you know, uh, mistakes made along the way, uh, but you can learn from them and we can keep, keep working and keep moving forward and, and come out, uh, better than we would if, if we sort of, uh, threw up our hands. So, so that's, that's why CPRA and, and my team and, and the folks at the agency, uh, do the work that we do. So. It's it's outstanding, and uh, I think the 2023 plan is a testament to the continued expertise of uh, CPRA and the entire group down there in Louisiana, public and private sector. 
Uh, I do have to ask, I mean, we didn't quite get to this question, but Chip Klein is leaving the chairman of CPRA. And uh, I don't know when, I think it's pretty soon he's going to be out the door. So I've just wondered, is there a scoop here? What's Chip going to go do? (laughs) Oh, goodness. No. And I didn't mean to I didn't mean to avoid that question by any stretch of the imagination. I just signed uh, my name on his goodbye uh, gift uh, at the at the office this week. So, um, yeah, Chip will be uh, leaving the the um, chair. He's the chairman of a board um, and he will be leaving uh, July 3rd. And um, I do not have a scoop for you on (laughs) where he is heading out. Um, I do know that he, um, you know, loves working in the coastal zone, loves working on coastal issues. I would be uh, shocked if he doesn't find his way working somewhere uh, on on Louisiana coastal issues. Um, but, you know, I also, um, you know, Chip has been a champion for the program. He has stepped in before he was chairman of the board. He was interim chairman of the board, I think, twice uh, in between folks. He's worked under, you know, uh, uh, Governor uh, John Bell Edwards and and worked really closely with him in the last five years, uh, six years. But, you know, he um, he has really been a champion for for many, many years. Um, And I think what's great is that CPRA and our coastal program, we really um, have a lot of folks who have a ton of experience who stick around and are committed to working in this field and working on these issues. So uh, I'm actually very excited that, um, you know, we already have identified who our next um, chairman of the board is going to be. And it's our current executive director, Bren Haas. He's going to be moving up to Chip's uh, position. So he'll be chairman Haas. Uh, And then, um, and then we're backfilling uh, Bren's position with our current deputy director, Greg Grandy. And so those guys have been working in the, in uh, you know, these, issues for years and years and years and are some of the the most committed and dedicated uh folks i know and and i also like them as people <laughs> not just because they're my bosses so uh it's it's real good to to know that those are the folks who are moving up into those positions and and that will have some continuity of kind of what's been happening so far and then we'll just wait and see uh we do have a gubernatorial uh election that's going to be happening um so we will be having a change in leadership come next year and so uh you know i remain optimistic that just as um, so the master plan actually um, was passed by the board in April and it just uh, um, yeah it went through the legislature last week or the week yeah, yeah you passed unanimously for, uh, so um, you know it's it's uh, while there are political aspects to it it is something that you know everybody sees value in and so you know I just hope that whoever our next governor is is uh, as committed to the coast as John Bell Edwards has been and, and that uh, you know our leadership can take it from there. <laughs> it is absolutely a testament to a job well done when the a plan is approved by the board unanimously at CPRA, then in the legislature as well. Uh, that's a testament to damn good work. So uh, congratulations to you and your team uh, and and continued success. So glad there's continuity of leadership. When you're spending a billion dollars a year on coastal projects and, and more, uh, continuity and expertise is so important and uh, glad to hear the agency is going to be in good hands following Chip's uh, tremendous tenure. I think he did a great job. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Krista Jankowski. She is a coastal and climate scientist and the manager of strategic planning and plan development at the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority for the state of Louisiana. Krista, thank you so much for walking us through the 2023 plan and continued good luck in your efforts uh, on the Louisiana coast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tyler. I've I've had a a wonderful time talking to y'all about what we're doing down here. 